Hello, everybody. Thank you for joining the Great Dynamics podcast. My name is Ahmed Hassan. And as always, with me today is a very interesting guest. Today, we have Lucas Weber on. Lucas is the co-founder and editor of The Militant Wire, a magazine online that I've been following for a long time, a research organization and yeah, something that I read regularly. And as a researcher, he's interested in uh, great power competition and transnational violent non-state actors. I think Lucas will do a much better job at introducing himself than I did. Thank you so much for, for, for joining us, Lucas. Thanks for having me. I'm a big fan of Grey Dynamics, so it's a pleasure. It's mutual. So tell me a little bit more about yourself, Lucas, if you can, and, and about the Militant Wire, how, how did that came about, and, and what are you guys up to now? Well, I'm a researcher focused on transnational militant movements, particularly in South and Central Asia, East Africa, and Southeast Asia, as well as I look into terrorism threats to the West. And something else that has fascinated me and I have been writing about quite a bit is how militant groups around the world are responding to the intensification of great power competition and also how Islamist groups are responding to the rise of China. And as for uh, Militant Wire, it really has its origins in a group chat between Tom Lord, the weapons researcher, War Noir, and myself. And in about September 2021, we had an idea, whereas um, at the time we were writing independently and we were sharing ideas with each other. So we figured, why not just create our own platform and our own research network? And so we, we went ahead and we thought of a name. We found a platform to host it. And it's, it's grown fairly quickly and consistently and has begun to receive a lot of attention. And Militant Wire itself, what we try to do is we try to we, we cover militant activity, irregular warfare, criminal organizations, essentially non-violent, non-state actors across the world. And we do so in a way that is bereft of morality, essentially. We just strictly report on the details of the events, what the actors in, involved have said for themselves and what state governments have said in response to attacks or certain developments without giving our opinion. And I, I find a lot of our readers have uh, this, uh, this kind of semi-objectivity has appealed to a lot of our readers uh, because we are in a, a hyper-polarized political landscape and we are basically trying to avoid becoming that. So... I think this is one of our strengths, and we also have built up a robust and global network of researchers where all of our team members can approach each other and uh, tap into their expertise to help their own personal research. And uh, this has really helped our researchers individually develop and our outlet grow. 
really cool. That's very interesting. And are there any areas that you believe that you guys have a better coverage on around the world? We uh, essentially, it's a generalist organization that's global in scope. So we do a little bit here, a little bit there, and we try to keep up to date on as many developments as we can. And um, I would say in War Noir's work in particular, he covers so many organizations in so many countries on so many continents, it makes my head spin. And he's still able to pump out articles analyzing the weapons of these groups fairly yeah. regularly. And it's really phenomenal to to see him work. So I think we have a unique advantage on the weapons analysis side. And yeah, I'd rather, I think we're solid all around and put out quality product for our readers. Yeah, very much so. Very interesting. Who is your, who, is there a model reader of a militant wire, not maybe a model reader, but but who is it for, first of all, and who do you think engages most, or who do you want to engage most? We should start actually from our approach. So because we try, we know objectivity isn't possible, so we try to just be highly descriptive, and then we do give some threat forecasting. And I think because we don't, moralize or over-editorialize, anyone can really find our work interested without becoming offended by, say, what we see in a lot of media, which is very Western-centric and often calls other governments regimes or uh, slanders them in different ways. We just, we just don't do any of this at all. And we, we want everyone to be able to appreciate our work and gain something from it, gain some insight from it, regardless who they are. And we have lots of subscribers from governments all across the world, intelligence agencies, NGOs, think tanks, universities. And then we have lots of, uh, for instance, conservative readers or anarchist readers, communist readers all across the spectrum. So I think that our approaches that I, that I described earlier is really working in attracting people from all walks of life and all areas of thought, essentially. So at the moment for you, what are you working on? What is your focus right now? Uh, right now, I am working mostly on ISKP, the New People's Army in the Philippines, Al-Shabaab in East Africa, and we are heavily covering Ukraine and especially the ideological formations on each side, the irregular tactics, the cross-border incursions, assassination attempts, uh, you know, the real gray zone, irregular aspects of this war. And yes, that's pretty much what we are working on right now. We're looking at Alec and I, Alec Bertina and I are looking at the Russian Imperial Movement and the Russian Imperial Legion and their role historically in Ukraine and their involvement in the post-invasion era of the war. All right. I, I remember you, you talking about uh, ISKP, and I want to get into that uh, in a second. But I wanted to 
ask you a question or something that I've been thinking about for a while about the work that you did. If I'm not mistaken, it was you and not your colleague on the so-called white power rangers. Yes, uh, this was an interesting organization I came across when looking through the kind of prosy online sphere and particularly the the far-right formations such as Rusich. And I came across WPRS and I, I looked into them and they're very interesting because they seem to be a kind of survivalist organization and a tactical training organization and they stress the obligation of becoming a partisan and embracing the partisan mindset. They don't mean this in terms of opposing Russia, but rather if the Russian state was to collapse or if Russia was to be in invaded or perhaps a nuclear strike happened, how you would survive and protect your people after some kind of uh, major event like this. Now, we have also seen them post a lot of training videos and uh, in wooded areas, nighttime raid uh, simulations. And we have seen them actually members of the organization or network or movement or whatever fighting on the front lines in Ukraine. So we know that they are also directly involved in the invasion and have been for quite some time. And what do you think makes them different, for example, like any of the identity-focused groups? Is there a difference? Maybe a better question. My main interest was because no one was covering them. I mean, they kind of have a national socialist, eco-fascist type of ideology or outlook so that kind of distinguishes them from, say, Rusich. And I found that, for instance, interesting, and that is something that defines them. All right. Yeah. I mean, the names they pick is, uh, to say the least, interesting, because I don't know whose idea it was to come up with the White Power Rangers. But yeah, you, you mentioned ISKP, maybe also like, I think there's people, uh, not many, but there are people listening who don't know what ISKP is. Maybe you could start there and, and uh, where we are today with them. Yeah, and I think um, to understand where we are today and kind of their ebb and flow nature where they are degraded and they resurge and they're degraded and they resurge, they're a very durable organization. So the Islamic State Khorasan province has its origin in the Pakistan and Afghanistan region in late 2014 but it was officially established in 2015 when it was recognized by uh, the Islamic State central leadership. And the emergence of this AFPAC branch was inspired by the rapid rise of the Islamic State and the establishment of the caliphate in Iraq and Syria in 2014. And many view ISKP as an Afghan group, but there is a quite notable Pakistani element dating to ISKP's nascent phase, including the Islamic State's subsumption of various defected Pakistani Taliban factions in late 2014. 
And ISKP actually did then become a Afghan-centric organization when the Pakistani military intensified operations against the Pakistani Taliban and other groups. And this kind of drove them into Afghanistan, given the immense pressure they were under. And ISKP became more heavily Afghanistan-based and the competitions with and hostilities toward the Taliban were then exacerbated. And this is important when we come to the present because this is kind of the origin of the conflict with the Afghan Taliban. So uh, ISKP also angered the Taliban when they co-opted multiple other factions previously aligned with the Taliban, such as the Islamic movement of Uzbekistan, and incorporating these groups brought expertise, seasoned fighters, uh, media operatives, and regional uh, geographical and linguistic knowledge to the network. And uh, ISKP uh, subsequently became the target of U.S. and Afghan forces while also having the Taliban become increasingly aggressive towards the Islamic State. And uh, ISKP gained momentum in 2016 and 2017, but then it was degraded and experienced a series of setbacks due to this ramped-up pressure from the U.S., Afghan forces, the Taliban, and for internal reasons. And as a result, ISKP forces uh, were killed and hundreds more were arrested or surrendered. Uh, Leadership figures were killed and their territory was rolled back. And uh, following ISKP's general rise and decline from 2015 to 2019, uh, the group found its legs again and resurged in the summer of 2020. And ISKP implemented a new strategy where they placed less focus on seizing and holding territory and then instead focused their efforts on a sustained campaign of militant attacks. Before the 2020 resurgence, for instance, ISKP was hitting soft targets, including places of worship, public gatherings, Afghanistan Shia communities and Pakistan Sufi communities. They also hit hard targets of the state infrastructure, security and government personnel and police forces. And essentially, the surge continued until the Taliban's takeover, where they markedly changed their strategy and really rose to become a media superpower in the jihadist space. Uh, Media superpower. Explain. Well, essentially... When the Taliban took power in August 2021, ISKP shifted much of its focus towards the new de facto government, and it launched an increasingly aggressive media warfare campaign designed to undermine, discredit, and delegitimize the Taliban. ISKP overhauled and bolstered uh, its media production apparatus and revamped its strategy. This entailed a rapid move towards centralization while expanding its regional scope and international vision. Essentially, when the Taliban took power in 
August 2021, not only did ISKB shift its focus towards the new de facto government, it also uh, increasingly uh, launched an aggressive media campaign designed to discredit, undermine, and delegitimize the Taliban. And they were able to focus on one target instead of multiple, or focus on one enemy instead of multiple. And essentially, ISKP started to work to undermine the Taliban's foreign relations as they made efforts to become internationally recognized, attract investment and foreign aid from regional and international states. And the Islamic State Kurdistan province actually highlights the Taliban's pursuit of diplomatic relations with what ISKP perceives as great enemies of Islam as proof of the Taliban's moral degradation and corruption. And we can also see that ISKP expanded its recruitment, fundraising, and incitement campaign targeting South Asia and Central Asia. So what they have become the group that produced the Islamic State group that produces propaganda in more languages than any Islamic State power center since the height of the caliphate. And this is quite significant. This is why I refer to them as a media superpower in the jihadist space. Yeah, that makes a lot of sense. And what is your opinion on the Taliban's response and, and their operations against ISKP and, and the role of, for example, the GDI? Hey, it took a while for the Taliban to really figure out the business of counterterrorism and counterinsurgency as for years they were the insurgents and the terrorists. So they had to kind of, they, they started out with a lot of gaps and deficiencies in their counterterrorism apparatus. And it was looking for a while like they were not going to be able to essentially restrain the Islamic State Kurdistan province who who was surging in attacks and uh, running wild throughout the country, wreaking havoc, hitting international targets such as uh, firing rockets across the Northern River to strike Uzbekistan last April and Tajikistan last May. They also hit the Russian embassy, the Pakistani embassy, and targeted Chinese nationals in Kabul. And things were looking very bleak, and um, a lot of governments were worried about their business people, their diplomats, their visiting delegations, or even tourists, foreign nationals inside Afghanistan. But we can see that in the recent period, in recent weeks, uh, uh, the Taliban has been launching an intense counterterrorism campaign all across the, the country. We see lots of this in the north, and we see lots of this around Kabul. So it was just reported uh, this morning, for instance, that the Taliban killed ISKP's second-in-command and in other recent operations, they were claiming the killing of high-level ISKP operatives and ideologues. And uh, we can see that 
this is not simply propaganda. I mean, it is to some extent, but we can see a market decline in ISKP's militant activity and in its media production output. So we can see that the Taliban is targeting media figures and commanders and the rank and file very aggressively. And it it seems to be working, at least to some extent. And it's also possible they're receiving intelligence from outside parties. But however, I would I would note that sometimes, although the Islamic State Khorasan province is no doubt being degraded, uh, they're not down and out. They're very much capable and dangerous. And often when we see long periods of inactivity or silence, this uh, is actually ominous and is followed by significant attacks. So I would not write them off too much at this moment. I don't want to get stuck too much on, on ISKP, but, and maybe you've talked about this and or you mentioned it just now, but what makes them so robust? Well, they are able to attract from non-traditional ethno-linguistic groups. For instance, they, as I mentioned earlier, they have ramped up their recruitment activities in South Asia and Central Asia. And we can see through ISKP's uh, martyr profiles of many Indian foreign fighters or Uzbek and Tajik foreign fighters that there are a lot of these figures in their ranks and they're actually able to attract a fair amount and steadily foreign fighters and they're also able to recruit from local populations local and the larger ethnic groups as well in compete with the Taliban or the Pakistani Taliban in doing so so they're they're very savvy with their recruitment and their financial flows or their financial fundraising activities and this is part of why they're very durable and also, their strategy is more guerrilla warfare, hit and run, and urban terrorism. And they're being very careful about releasing video that could be geolocated, and they move around a lot and are very careful about their communications. So it's a very savvy organization, and they're in survival mode, but they will, uh, they will strike targets when they can. Very interesting. I don't think that ISKP gets that much attention, right? At least not in the media, but that there is, so Ukraine is, uh, is taking up a lot of space in, in the discourse right now. Can you tell me a little bit more about how you go about when you want to create a report or an article or a profile? Like, how does your process look? What tools do you use? Do you have, you know, a, a set plan of action? How does that work? When I'm doing a threat assessment, for instance, I this is not to be arrogant or anything, but I, I listen to what the militants say, and I understand that a lot of it is propaganda, but they do make their intentions uh, very clear. And when they start to threaten a country, particularly one in the region, they usually follow through on their words. So... For instance, before the Uzbekistan and uh, Tajikistan rocket attacks, I 
monitored and noticed an uptick in threats towards Tajikistan and Uzbekistan and other Central Asian countries. So I reported on these threats and essentially said um, in the past when they have spoken like this, when they have employed this, these types of media and propaganda techniques, it is quite possible that these countries will be targeted. And I also did the same for Pakistan diplomatic assets and government workers in Afghanistan and wrote a lot on the ISKP threat to China and was called an alarmist for quite some time. But I was simply reporting what they were saying and that in the cases I described before the Kabul hotel attack, it fit the pattern that all of these did before they were attacked. So I do think it is important to access jihadist channels, terrorist channels, whether they're paramilitaries or whatever, and listen to what they have to say because a lot of it is propaganda, but they are expressing their intentions, and we should take that very seriously. Yeah, absolutely. I find it interesting. So basically, you have created indicators and warning for these different groups. So when you see an indicator... You can like an attach a a warning of what's potentially going to happen. I, I'm just putting it into a into a framework for an intelligence analyst how how we do it, and it sounds you know very similar to to something like that. And what are your favorite sources? Like where where do you go to get answers or, or get more insight? Well, I like to. Uh... I network very hard, and if I have advice for other maybe up-and-coming analysts or writers, I'd say do not be afraid to contact, say, your your favorite authors or your favorite intellectuals or analysts because they're just normal people, and a lot of the time they're they're willing to help others. So I have no qualms about reaching out to anyone that I feel I can connect with and that can help me figure out perhaps an aspect of my methodology that they're more familiar with. And I also, at Militant Wire, we have group chats and we all talk to each other and we have a very broad range of experts on various issues all around the world. So we we all talk to each other and we ask, do you have this source or this source or have you heard this rumor or... Have you seen anything that would suggest so-and-so? So, so uh, a lot of it is our own methods and then drawing upon the wire research network and then just going outside and being, you know, aggressive but polite in expanding your network to researchers you don't know but you know that can give you answers that would help your analysis. Interesting. Did you talk or do you do you want to talk to the groups that you're writing about? Yeah, some of them are more receptive than others. I mean, we cover the uh, the New People's Army and the Communist Party of the Philippines for interviews and for their comments on articles, uh, and they're very willing to talk. And War Noir is able to contact a lot of groups, as is uh, Ricardo Ballet for instance, uh, from the Coruscant Diary, who also is a contributor for us. Some organizations are more open than others. 
uh, in my experience. Okay. I want to ask you, what does your workflow look like? Where do you start looking? What tools do you use? And how do you get to a final product? I find uh, I rely and a lot of our researchers rely on heavily on primary sources. So we look at what these groups are saying, what kinds of media they're releasing. We look at a lot of government statements. So we like to look at both sides, both, you know, they naturally, the militant groups and the governments differ in their takes on what happens. So we like to look at both sides. Uh, We use a lot of messaging applications to gather primary resources. We use archive websites. And, you know, when we can, we interview militant groups. Or usually someone in our network can provide all the documents. So that really helps. But um, really, my, my personal method or structure when doing research is I like to first get a firm grasp on the history and the context. I'm very big on history and context because I believe that to understand the present and to forecast the future, we need to look at the past. And this is uh, very big for me and for our for the Militant Wire team in general. So I start with that, and then I move to the present, and I see how this kind of ties in, or if there's any, uh, if it's history repeating itself, or if these current events are similar to trends or events or statements or what have you that happened in the past, and what came from those. And then I look at the present issue that I'm studying and I apply both kind of instinct, historical knowledge, put it in context, and then I come to the forecast, which is based on all of these things. And uh, some editors don't like that. I don't like to speak definitively, but, you know, you can't predict the future. So I say, you know, I like to say, this may happen or it is likely that this will happen because in the past this happened. So that's that's my uh, uh, structural method for actually writing and researching. No, I mean, we do the same thing. So uh, that's kind of like built in how we write. And uh, I think it's, if it was an exact science, we would have called it that. It's definitely not. You already talked a little bit about, you know, reaching out to people, do you have any other advice for young people that, that want to do what you guys at Militant Wire do, what you do personally? Yeah, I mean, it's hard to really break into the industry and write for the prominent publications. And a lot of them want to see, for instance, you know, your past writings, writing samples. But that's very hard if, if you can't break in and have writing samples from quality publications. So I advocate networking with editors of various outlets and also diversifying your bylines across different outlets to build up your resume and your writing portfolio. And a lot of people, they're also understandably shy or humble so they don't want to promote uh, their own work but I say that you should aggressively 
promote your own work and you should be proud of it because no one's going yeah. to see it if you're not tweeting it out or putting it on LinkedIn. Or And you should also ask people perhaps with a lot of followers if they would help you spread awareness of your article and share it. Don't be afraid to ask people that even if you don't know them. And it's, it's nothing for these people to uh, you know, retweet your article or quote tweet it or uh, make yeah. a comment about it. So uh, this is how you get recognized and you can really uh, build your personal profile and build uh, international awareness of your expertise and your work. So basically be bold, but be polite. Great. I love that. Do you have any cultural recommendations? What are you reading right now? What are you watching? Even if it's a guilty pleasure, I would love to know. Yeah. Right now I'm uh, going back going back through the ISIS reader because I think it is important to understand if you're studying the Islamic State to look at their, although the Islamic State, the movement itself existed since the 90s. And then um, I recommend reading you know, getting familiarizing yourself with the the doctrine, the early doctrine, because a lot of the modern stuff stems from this. And uh, this is why I'm reading this. And I'm also reading uh, some communiques written by uh, Jose Maria Seesaw, the founding chairman of the Philippine Communist Insurgent Movement. So uh, I essentially don't have much of a life right now, so I'm not doing much for entertainment. <laughs> Maybe some gaming here and there, but uh, it's yeah. mostly research for me, and I enjoy doing it, so it's it's not really work. I don't see it as that anyways. Yeah, that is great to hear. Do you, do you have any questions for me? Yeah, I would actually like to know how uh, Grey Dynamics started and how you guys came together because, you know, I, it was a very special thing for uh, us to found Militant Wire and really learn as we go and uh, meet lots of great people along the way. And I, I kind of want to hear about your experience with that, if you're willing to share. Yeah, sure, absolutely. I'm not, uh, I'm not going to go too deep into it because we don't have much time. But So I started Great Dynamics. The idea was born kind of like late 2016. When me and at the time Seju Kim, who uh, founded Green Dynamics with me, started talking and, and, and just maybe daydreaming about you know what we would do post you know our work that we used to do, and we were we were st- we were in school at the time. We went, I think, I went after work. I went back to school, and that's how we met. And we got an opportunity in 2017, early 2017 for a oil and gas company and they they had a report that was written by a large intelligence company in London and they were not really happy with it so they showed us the report and they, they told us how much they paid for it and we both looked at each other and it was like there's no way that you pay so much money for something like this and I remember that the topic was Western Sahara like a market entry report for Western Sahara. And we were like, yeah, we, we believe we could do a better job for a more decent price than that. And we went out and we did it and, and they loved it. And we we saw that there was an appetite to provide intelligence, much more granular level in one end research-wise, but also providing forecast, even though, as, as you said before, not many people like the forecast because they believe you're predicting the future, which we are not. We're just giving estimates. 
And so we did that. And then we, Brian and I just found it in 2017, August of 2017. But really, you know, I mean, the first couple of years, you know, I'll be honest about this. And the people that know me know this, but it was a struggle, you know. So it was not a, uh, it was absolutely not uh, something that we saw as like a primary thing. So it was like a, a very much an uphill battle, but we knew what was out there, what, what others were doing. And I say that with respect, and we just believed that we could do a better job, and particularly when it comes to places like Africa, Latin America, and in general, just the global south, where you don't have the richness of data and sensors that you have in, in, in the West and perhaps in the Far East. So and we prided ourselves also on having you know a fantastic network and, and being able to talk to people on the ground and get insights and so that's kind of what empowered great dynamics to be able to do what it did it was in our networks and on the ground and, and the people that i've been uh, working with over the years that made good relationships and that's kind of how we started and we morphed somewhat into more of an online platform as we were going on and that went well and uh like perhaps that's why you know us because you know we, we actively publish work and our reports as well as articles and and the one thing that we're trying to do now, and we'll have some more news about that in this week, which is our own intelligence school, which will have components of online learning, but also offline. So we are uh, trying to help others. And that's why I started this podcast, actually, to help others demystify intelligence and research. And sometimes we, we all do the same work, but we call it different things. And I wanted to have people all like yourself to show that, well, you might don't, you might not call yourself an intelligence analyst, but the product and the work often is is very similar, if not the same, and and give people an understanding. What can you do if you know the trade craft? What can you do to go to different careers, and 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 what are the possibilities? And I think a lot of organizations do not advertise consistently, or they don't advertise coherently, or what they are looking for, and sometimes they don't even know. So we decided we know how to do the work. We know how to train people because we've done that plenty. Now we're going to try to help train more people and help organizations develop, improve their own intelligence capabilities or build it for them. So that's something that we're working on right now. Yeah, so that's kind of like where we are and, and how Great Dynamics became what it was today. Yeah, well, I'm glad it happened. You're a great organization. You're doing a lot of great work. And uh, appreciate that. You're one of the better ones out there. Means a lot. I'm glad to hear that you're continuing to grow, and I'm looking forward to seeing what you have planned for the future. Yeah, thank you so much, man. It's a it's a it's an honor to hear that from you because I know we had similar journeys in that regard, and uh, and we look at very similar problems. And uh, I've always been a big fan of the Militant Wire. I don't know why we haven't talked sooner. And uh, and the people involved. So that's that's yeah. I, I really appreciate what you guys are up to. Thanks a lot. I mean, it means a lot to us, and I'm sure the other guys will like to hear this. Yeah, absolutely. And as you said, you know, we had Alec on. We hope to have your other colleague on soon, and talk about what what he's working on. Again, you know, thank you so much for for coming on and and, and talking about your process and and uh, how Medicine Wire became what it is today and. And what you guys are working on and what you guys are watching in the world so yeah appreciate that and for anybody listening as i always say if you made it this far into the podcast and and, and you like what we do 
especially on YouTube. So if that's something that we've been doing lately, subscribe and give us feedback. We love that. And give a follow to The Militant Wire on Twitter. We put it all in the show notes so you can find Lucas and, and The Militant Wire and what they're up to. And yeah, if you want to subscribe to us and uh, you want to support what we're doing, please go to greatanarics.com. And if you want to support a great organization like Militant Wire, uh, go to themilitantwire.com. Uh, we will also have links of that in the show notes. And again, Lucas, thank you so much for your time and for everybody listening. I'll talk to you guys soon. Thanks for having me. Appreciate it. Cheers. Cheers.